right, guys. Good to be back with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew. I'm the lead pastor of Salt City Church, so I check in with you guys a couple times a semester, and it's good to be back. So I understand you guys have been going through the book of Acts, and my guess is that some of you are hearing the Bible preached for the first time. And maybe an underlying question that you don't even know that you have that's been kind of batting around in the back of your mind is why do people at Salt Company take the Bible so seriously? And I think there's this idea kind of floating out in the air that's essentially that science is rational and it's based on facts and that religion is based on faith or private belief. And there's actually been a few writers that I've been influenced by who challenged that assumption. And one of them is a British theologian by the name of Leslie Newbegin. And this is something that Leslie Newbegin wrote about this reality. He said, the work of philosophers and historians of science in the present century has shown very clearly that the whole work of modern science rests on faith commitments, which cannot themselves be demonstrated by the methods of science. The rationality of the universe is not something that science can prove. It has to be assumed as the starting point of scientific effort, and the assumption is a faith commitment. So do you see what Leslie Newbegin's saying? He's saying that in order to start the discipline of science, you first have to believe that the world is a rational place. Then you start the pursuit of science in order to prove your faith assumption. So what he says is, even in the pursuit of science, you start with faith commitments. And what I'm going to contend is that with Christianity, and specifically as we look at the Bible, that you need reason as well as faith. So we're going to be examining this faith commitment that we have as Christians. The faith commitment goes like this. The Bible is universally true. And what I want to do is something that might surprise you. I don't want to say to you, just take that by blind faith. What I want to give are three rational proofs from the book of Acts that that faith commitment is valid. The first one is that the Bible is internally consistent. Okay, we're looking at Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start with verses 2 through 3. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul has just moved from Philippi to Thessalonica, and he's in a synagogue, and he is reasoning with people, trying to prove to them from the scriptures that Jesus, in fact, did come to the earth in bodily form, die, and rise from death. Now, recognize at this time, the only scriptures that the people had then were not the whole Bible that I hold in my hand, but what we call the Old Testament. So he's walking them through the Old Testament, and he's saying, this passage, and this passage, and this passage that you've once thought just predicted this future Messiah 
is actually speaking to you about Jesus. Let me give you an example of an argument that Paul uses in another place in the book of Acts that he may have used in this synagogue. Acts chapter 13, verses 35 through 38. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So in this passage, Paul is quoting the Old Testament passage of Psalm 16, verse 10, where David is writing what God has promised to him. And he re-quotes that section when he says that David is saying to God, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And what David was talking about in that moment was this promise that God had made to him as the king of Israel that he would not see decay. So the way that the people who read the Old Testament then thought of that passage is that God had promised to David that he would never die. So they had this question batting around in their mind, why did God promise David that he would never die and then he died? And we can go visit his tomb to this day. And Paul takes that question that they had in their mind and he applies that Old Testament promise not to David, but to the one whom David pointed to. And he's saying that David was not the ultimate king who God was making that promise to. God was making a promise to David, but it was really a promise that someone greater than David would come, the true king of Israel. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, it says that he was king of the Jews right over the top of the cross there. And Paul's saying he was the true king of the Jews. And what he's saying about Jesus is that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true king, whose body never saw any decay. So what Paul's saying is that their scriptures don't have any contradictions in them when they are seen in light of the events that they saw happen in their day. He's saying the whole Bible is about Jesus. The key to unlock every promise of Scripture and its ultimate fulfillment is Jesus himself. In fact, in another place, Paul says all of God's promises in the whole Old Testament find their yes in Jesus. So if you've ever had questions about the Bible and its internal consistency, I would ask you to begin to read the Bible with Jesus in mind. Okay, some of you might be asking the question, as I start to talk about the internal consistency of the Bible, a bunch of different arguments might be running through your mind. And you may have heard this argument before that I heard in Philosophy 101 class when I was in college. I remember my professor challenging all of us who were Christians and saying, well, if you're really a consistent Christian, then I want you to look at the tag of your clothes right now 
because you know that in Leviticus 19.19, it says that you should not wear fabric that is made from two different types of fabric. And so if you're, not, if you're wearing a sweatshirt or a shirt that's got polyester and cotton, you're breaking one of God's commandments, and yet you're applying all these other commandments to people. And so what's up with that? Well, what was my philosophy professor doing? He's totally bashing the internal consistency of the Bible. So what would you have said to him? Well, I was a freshman in college, so I didn't say anything. But now, what I would say is I would go to Galatians 5.6. This is one of those like banner verses where Paul interprets the entire Old Testament in light of what has happened in Christ. And he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. See, when he uses that term, circumcision, what he's, re- uh, he, what he's referring to is the entire Old Testament ceremonial law. In other words, all of the outward stuff, the sacrifices, the wearing two different clothings, the food laws, all of those things. And, and this is what Paul makes this just crazy statement None of it matters anymore. Why? Because God's whole purpose in giving us the Old Testament ceremonial law was to point us not to this reality that we all need this outward conformity that's found in the clothes that we wear and and, and those types of things. What he's pointing us to is the need for a heart change. It was a visible representation of the purity of heart that God wants to do in you through his spirit. So after Jesus rose from death, the Holy Spirit came, comes to live inside of every believer, and he did away with the ceremonial law because its purpose was done. Now God's purpose is that you would have faith in Jesus that would express itself in love that comes from your heart. So here's, here's the, the argument. The Bible is internally consistent when you read it in light of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the key to understanding the Bible. Okay? Second argument that Paul makes is that the Bible is indiscriminately compelling and offensive. Okay? I'm going to explain that. Acts chapter 17, verses 4 through 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Okay, here's... What happens? Paul spends days arguing for the internal consistency of the Bible and arguing that many passages in the Bible point us directly to Jesus and that Jesus did, in fact, live, die, 
and rise from death. And so now he's the rightful king of the universe. This is what always happens when the Bible is faithfully preached. There's a bunch of people who get really offended and a bunch of people who are super compelled. So you see, first, some of them were persuaded. Now notice it doesn't say they took a blind leap of faith. No, they heard his rational argument for what the Bible was, and they were persuaded that what he was saying was true. This would include Jews and Greeks. Here's the surprising thing. It's the people who got mad. If anyone said that they believed the Bible at that time in history, it was the Jews. They loved the Old Testament. They memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. And here's what happened when Paul preached to them. They got jealous. They formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, now notice what happens for them. They lose all rationality. For them, it's not about the argument. They don't want to sit down and have a conversation with Paul. They just form a mob, go out into the street, and go absolutely insane. Man, I'm just glad people don't do that today, aren't you? Like, guys, so much of the arguing that is happening on the internet and the resultant mobs in the streets is because people can't have rational arguments anymore. The reason that people get so mad is because they don't really know what they believe. It's insecurity and fear. The people in your life who seem absolutely most sure of what they know are the most afraid. Especially of this. Because what happens when you are confronted with the Bible, is it forces you to change absolutely everything about your life. You see, the Jews, their position of authority and power in the society was based on their interpretation of the Scripture. They had cultural power because they claimed to have the key to unlocking the scripture and everybody was looking to them and dependent on them. And so they're sitting there and all of a sudden this guy, the apostle Paul, who's this guy? He's in the synagogue and he is saying something different than what they've said and they can feel their power getting taken away from them and you can just see them getting so angry. And what we see in our society right now, this is an evidence for the truth of the Bible. When the Bible is brought to the table, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to people on the political left or the political right. If you want to talk to them about what the Bible says, 
everybody gets mad. Why? They want to hold on to their power. And Jesus looks at everyone in the eye through the Bible, and he says, you're all wrong. You all need to repent. Every single one of you. And this is universally true about the Bible. One of the most compelling things about the Bible to me is that it offends every culture at a different point. Okay, let me give you an example. My oldest two kids are adopted from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And when I went to pick them up from the Congo, I went with my mom because my wife had just given birth to twins, which I I wouldn't recommend that. (laughs) And um, so I'm I'm in the Congo with my mom, and I was there for 40 days because there was a government shutdown of adoptions. So I had a lot of time to talk to Congolese people about what they thought and what they believed. And one of the things that I was surprised by was how um, mad Congolese people were about the direction that America was taking from a secular perspective regarding homosexuality. Okay, People in Africa love what the Bible says about homosexuality. They think it's wrong. And so they applaud. Yes, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, and you're uncomfortable right now because secular people in America don't applaud. Get really uncomfortable with that. It is so offensive to us. And on the other hand, what I learned about people in the Congo is they love the wrath of God. Do you know why? Because people drive around to villages in their communities with child soldiers in the back of trucks and machine guns, and all of them have lost relatives to these guerrilla groups that go into these villages and just indiscriminately kill people. They love the wrath of God. Do you know what they have a really hard time accepting? The forgiveness of God. When they read the Bible, they highlight all the parts we want to tear out. And they want to tear out all the parts that we highlight. We love the love of God. We love the forgiveness of God. But we don't like any time that the Bible tells us that we're wrong. And we definitely don't like the wrath of God. And do you know what all of that says to me? And I could list off a bunch of different cultures. Mostly I can talk about the West. But basically, if you went to any different continent in the world, you would be able to say different things about what they were offended by and what they loved about the Bible. Do you know what that tells me? It's true. Isn't that exactly what you would expect the Bible to be like as it addressed the diverse cultures of the world if it was spoken by God himself? It would offend us at different points and it would be compelling to us at different points which shows that it has divine origin and that it's not just a Western invention. 
It's not. Came out of the Middle East. The, the authors of the Bible are all different colors and from all different cultures. And that's because what they wrote down is from God himself. And so what happened here in Acts 17 is always what happens when the Bible's preached. There's people that are offended. There's people that are persuaded. In fact, everybody's somewhat persuaded and everybody's somewhat offended. But the question is, what do we do with that? So how do we move forward? Where do we go from here? Thankfully, this passage says that the Bible finally, is personally examinable. You can read it yourself. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Now it's interesting to me that Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, recorded these events, describes the people from Berea as noble. So noble means of an exalted moral or mental character or excellence. Think of nobility, think of a king or queen. So because they were noble, when they heard what the Apostle Paul had to say about the Bible, they didn't just take his word for it. Or they didn't form a mob and get super offended and outraged and mad. Instead, they did something absolutely crazy. They read it every day. Instead of being mad at the messenger, they examined the message themselves. They joined small groups, and they started reading the Bible together, and they started asking themselves the question, am I persuaded that this is true? Does what he says makes sense. Here's another way, reason you can trust the Bible, even in this passage. It doesn't say, and everybody who examined the scriptures got saved. No. It says some of them did, which sounds pretty realistic to me. So, so they're reading the Bible, they're examining it, they're checking it out, they're checking Paul's work. So in other words, this, is, this takes a lot of humility. Because when you have a deeply entrenched belief system that you have become persuaded about. So in their case, it was a certain way of reading the Old Testament scripture. It is really hard to change your mind. It takes a lot of humility to go back to the source material and look at it. I was getting my hair cut by a girl not too long ago. And I told her I was a pastor. I always feel like it's almost like a confession for me. You know, I'm talking to him for a while. What do you do? I'm a pastor. And then the whole conversation just slows down and changes. You know, 
and I, what's your spiritual journey? And I start asking questions. And, and she said, the Bible is full of contradictions. I paused for four seconds. And I said, oh, which ones? You know, I could see her in the mirror. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, here's my contention. She didn't say anything, and I let her off the hook pretty easily. But here's my contention, is that almost everybody who has ever said that to me has never read the Bible. Like, that is just stinking academically dishonest. That's just... That is just terrible. Like, if you're going to criticize the thing, at least read it. You know how that is. When that kid's in class, you know he didn't read the chapters, and he's talking more than anybody else. And you're just like, shut up. Read the book. Then you can talk and say something intelligent about it. Right? Like, that's just basic, like, humanity, right? Like, read the book. All right, so um, my dad um, was a professor at Purdue for most of his career, Purdue and Iowa State. And he was a professor at Purdue, and he worked with a Jewish guy by the name of uh, Evan Janovitz. He says that Evan Janovitz was the smartest guy that he ever met in his life. He had like photographic memory, perfect SAT score, you know, all, the, all that kind of stuff. And he said that they would sit in meetings together sometimes and he would be reading like an academic journal and listening to an academic conversation at the same time. And my dad said that he would know more about both of them than my dad knew about just the conversation that he was listening to. He could read and listen at the same time and absorb both pieces of information. So anyway, he and my dad were having conversations about the Bible. And my dad said to him, have you read it? And he basically learned that Evan had not read the Bible. So he said, you should start and read Hebrews and Romans because he'd read parts of the Old Testament and see how that sort of jives with the Old Testament. And so Evan said, okay, I'll do it. Well, like I said, Evan was a really smart guy, so my dad gave him, I still remember the Bible, it was this NIV study Bible, it was like this big, and it was kind of two-tone brown on the front. And he gave it to him, and Evan came back two months later, and he said, I read it. He slammed it down on his desk. And my dad said, oh, you read Romans and Hebrews? He goes, no, I read the whole thing. <laughs> and he goes, and it's all true. He, he said, the that the Jesus of the New Testament is everywhere in the Old Testament, and I never saw it before. And all I'm asking you to do is take this book seriously enough to read it, to examine it. It is either of no value and no importance, or is the key that unlocks eternal life. 
guys, just, just from the standpoint, okay, even if this eternal life thing wasn't on the line, okay, I believe it totally is. I'm giving my life to that right now. But even if it wasn't, I just looked up the stats on it. The Bible has sold something like six billion copies in its history. The next closest book to the Bible is like sayings of Chairman Mao or something like that, less than a billion. So just from like, if you want to be a well-read, educated person, you should read the whole Bible. And I think all of you, you're here at Salt Company, but more broadly than that, you're at a university because you're saying, I want to learn. I want to know the most important things in the world. Why not give it a chance? And here's what you're going to find. You are going to find yourself personally compelled and totally offended. <laughs> okay. And the reason for that is anytime you encounter a person that you get to know well enough, you'll be compelled and offended by them, right? And maybe the reason that everybody gets compelled and offended is because they get close enough to Jesus to smell his breath. That's what I want, that's what I want you to have. Maybe, maybe this is the key to finding Jesus. All right, let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you that you, um, you have not hidden yourself, but you have hidden yourself in plain sight. I believe in your word. And I pray that we would be people who are noble and um, have humility and are academically and spiritually honest enough to read the Bible before we make judgments about it. And then I pray that we'd be people who are honest enough about ourselves that when we are offended by you, that instead of fighting you, we would bow the knee to you and we would say, I am wrong. You are right. You are God. Would you be my Lord? I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.